Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey, Ben, you like coffee? Yeah. Do you like cocoa? Yeah. Join okay. the Andersonville and Lincoln Square Ravenswood Chamber of Commerce in celebrating a first-time partnership for the coffee and cocoa crossover. Oh, my goodness. Ben is cheering right now. Curated packages are now on sale. Packages that celebrate the collective local coffee shops, cafes, and businesses in each Chicago neighborhood. Packages are themed around coffee, tea, and chocolate and include at-home barista gadgets, local treats, a limited edition crossover mug, and redemption offers at participating locations. The crossover is part of Andersonville Hyg Fest this February. Purchase packages until February 18th at 12 p.m. Central Time and pick up locally February 19th or 20th. And hey, remember, it's Andersonville Hyg Fest this February, February 18th. Uh, purchase at lsr.market. That's LSR Market. Coffee and cocoa, huh? Sounds good. It does sound good. The man, the myth, the legend, the pride and joy of Logan Square, 35th Ward Alderman. And Carlos Ramirez Rosa. Carlos, I can't remember. And I humbly apologize for forgetting this every time. Are you also the Democratic committeeman of the 35th Ward? You know, I was for my first term, but we believe in sharing leadership and building up leaders in the 35th Ward. So one of our uh, independent political organization leaders, Anthony Casada, he's the committeeman now. Okay. I had. A, I remember that you were involved uh in the uh replacement of uh louis arroyo i remember talking to you about that's right that. i was the committeeman at that juncture uh, at that juncture we, we'll get to that uh get your thoughts and that's why I, I wanted out ben i was like get me out of here you know well as long as we're on the subject uh i know you're a political junkie and i know you follow everything from afar so even though i didn't uh, run this by in the pre-show planning uh uh, texting we did uh your thoughts on what went down on the north side with kelly cassidy uh and the vacancy created by heather stains and just in general carlos this notion uh how to handle a vacancy when a state senator or a state rep uh just walks away right in the the middle well at the outset in this case of heather stains of her term your thoughts on this in general well you know i think it's important that um one, we recognize the process laid out in the Illinois Constitution, right, which says that uh, Democratic committeemen or Republican committeemen or Green Party committeemen in theory, right, whichever party holds the seat, that the elected representative of those voters in that area then collectively decide, right, who should continue on with that seat. And I think that makes a lot of sense, right, because if, if the voters elected a Democrat and they have Democratic elected officials that they've elected to represent the Democratic Party. I think it makes sense that when you have these, you know, uh, vacancies uh, that are created, uh, that the party temporarily fill that seat. Now, if there's the ability to have a special election, 
right, then absolutely have the special election. And that's stipulated in the Illinois Constitution. Uh, but a lot of times these vacancies uh, pop up in such a way that there's not an ability to make a, a uh, you know, to have a special election. So in the, in the context where the committeemen then have to appoint, I think that they should try and make the process as democratic as possible. They should have it out in the light of day. Uh, no backroom deals, you know, let anyone come forward and put their name forward, have a candidate for them, let people get to know the folks that are vying for this position. Uh, and then within your own ward, have your own, you know, process. In the 35th ward, we had a vacancy when uh, Senator Iris Martinez, you know, when she uh, decided to uh, become our <laughs> clerk of the court uh, and she, the vacancy was created. And what we said was anyone that wants to run for this position needs to come before the 35th Ward organization so that the members, the progressive folks in this district can have a conversation and figure out who they think is best suited to fill this vacancy. Uh, and we had a good process and we ended up with a wonderful uh, individual that filled that seat, uh, you know, Christina Pacioni Zayas. I will say, um, you know, I know Mike Simmons personally. I've known him for many years. Uh, I think he's a great guy. We bumped heads uh, when he was working for Rahm Emanuel, but, you know, that's water under the bridge. That was quite some time ago, and I think he's going to be an excellent uh, state senator. All right, very good. Uh, yes, and he obviously did a, uh, an outstanding job of convincing committeemen uh, in that area to support him because I predicted openly, I thought for certain Kelly Cassidy would get the gig, uh, and he clearly uh, did a better job of organizing the committee minutes, so they move on. And like you, Carlos, I've never, I, I, oh, unlike you, I've never met Michael, but I am, this is how open-minded I am, and I think you'll be really impressed. I am not going to hold it against him that he worked for Mayor Rahm Emanuel. How about that, Carlos? <laughs> That's just the new me, the open-minded me, okay? You know what? We all have our, like, uh, stumbles when we're young. You know, nobody's perfect. Uh, That's right. Uh, we That's right. We, we believe account. in restorative processes. Yes, I believe. <laughs> I believe in restorative justice. I think it was just a momentarily, you know, momentarily he was just uh, wooed by Rob's neoliberal rap. He goes, "Oh, that makes sense to me." But now he's seen the light, and he's going to be a true progressive. All right, let's get down to business. And uh, we've been talking a lot today about uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot's comments uh, to the New York Times regarding the Chicago Teachers Union about elected school board. Uh, and just sort of her, her worldview um, about how she handled the recent negotiations with the teachers union over opening up schools. So uh, these are three things I'd love to get your opinion on, all three of them, opening the schools, Lori's relationship with the union, elected school board. Which one do I start with? Well, let's start with uh, Lori uh, Lightfoot and her attitude toward the Chicago teacher union. Uh, what's your thoughts about this, uh, Carlos? Well, you know, I, I think it's really interesting because that conspiracy theory that Mayor Lightfoot put forward in the New York Times that, you know, the CT was plotting to take over the city is just so devoid from reality. It, it's difficult to understand. Does she actually really believe that? Um, and if she actually really believes that, then what that leads me to believe is that, you know, our political leadership knows so little about unionism that they just don't understand that the reason why CTU engages in these fights is because they have a responsibility to the workers of CPS to make sure that they get a fair contract. And in this instance, because of mayoral control, Mayor Lightfoot is the boss 
of the Chicago public schools. And so if you're a union that's serious about building power and winning a fair contract, you have to figure out every single avenue possible to pressure the boss to give you a fair contract. And so what that means is you're going to look to build allies in city council because you're regulated by the state of Illinois, which gave the mayor control over CPS. You're going to look to build allies in the state of Illinois and in the state house. Um, if there was an elected school board, that elected school board then becomes the boss. And so your attention and your resources are going to switch to uh, the elected school board, to making sure that you have allies and good people that understand public education, that respect teachers on that school board. So this notion that this is all just petty politics, that they just dislike Lori Lightfoot for who she is personally, it's a bunch of nonsense. Come on, read a book about labor relations. Learn a little bit about unionism 101. It's about the workers versus the boss. And when the boss is a jerk and wants to bust the union and not give you good working conditions, the workers who have a union and know their power and their strength, they're going to come together and they're going to fight. And that's going to lead to labor conflict. So it just really baffles me, makes me sad when, because I even hear some reporters who I respect and love, they'll tell me, oh, well, don't you think that this is just, you know, petty politics? This is just personal squabbles. I'm saying, no, it's a freaking labor conflict, right? The mayor who's the boss wants one thing, lower wages, bad, unsafe working conditions, and the union's not going to accept it. And of course, then you're going to have conflict and you might even have some strikes. All right. Now, let me ask you this. At the, uh, here, I'm going to play devil's advocate and take Lori Lightfoot's side. Do you really believe that the mayor of Chicago wants bad, unsafe working conditions? Which you did. You did, Ben. You voted for Lori. So. <laughs> I did. You. Oh, that was a low blow. <laughs> I'll tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, when he was at Whitney Young, he was a great debater, and he knew where the weak spot was. <laughs> he went right for it. Yes, I did. I actually believed everything she told me and McDumkey when she was on the hideout stage, Carlos. I believed her. And now Michael Scott, we're on a tangent here, but Michael Scott, your esteemed colleague uh, in the city council, alderman of the 24th Ward, is saying, Ben, what an idiot you were. You should never, ever, ever believe anything a campaigner says. <laughs> they just lie. No, 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 no. See, I, I, I'm going to have to disagree with Michael there. You know, there's a study uh that looked at politicians and what percent of their promises they keep on average most politicians keep 80 percent of their promises i think if you were to do an analysis of mayor lori lightwood she'd, she'd have an f right 80 percent is like a b normally in most grading rubrics i think she'd be at like 40 percent um and, and so the reality is, is that most politicians right they, they know that when you go and you tell the voters hey i'm going to do xyz that there's a general expectation you're going to do xyz the voters will forgive you some things because, of course, you don't know everything when you're running for office and things change once you do get into office. But by and large, elected officials keep 80 percent of their promises. Mayor Lori Lightfoot has not done that. So um, I, she sold herself. But the thing is, she did change over the campaign trail. When I first spoke with her, I spoke for her with her for an hour at length because she was looking for my endorsement at that time. And she had recently announced she was not the candidate who ended up facing Mayor Lightfoot. Um, Tony Preckwinkle months later. It was a totally different candidacy. She moved to the left as time went on, and I thought that those were genuine positions she was adopting, but it was just all just lip service uh, in order to, to close the, the space that existed between her and Tony Preckwinkle uh, and try and posture herself as a progressive choice. But we are on a tangent here. We were talking about you know, Mayor Lightfoot and CPS. Yeah, so do you actually believe, uh, I don't know if you were just on a roll there, but you said something like, uh, the mayor does not want safe working conditions in the public schools. Do you believe that? 
Well, look, I believe that you got to listen to the people that are on the front lines, and those are the workers. And in this instance, these are essential workers, teachers. And if they're telling you, look, we don't have the conditions where we feel safe, then I'm going to say, look, if the boss is pushing for something else, then I'm going to say the boss doesn't want safe working conditions because I'm always going to take the side of the workers. But what I will say is that I think that Mayor Lightfoot is a neoliberal mayor. She accepts the paradigm of neoliberalism, which is austerity, which is, you know, um, we're not going to ask the ultra rich to pay their fair share. We're not going to ask big corporations to pay their fair share. We're going to, you know, nickel and dime people and work off of the limited regressive taxes that we have. And if we're not able to fund it, then that means we have to cut things. And so CPS for years has been experiencing that austerity, cut after cut after cut. And so when you have a situation like a pandemic that requires the use of major resources to mitigate that risk, I think in this instance, uh, you know, Lori Life was just saying, well, you know, yeah, in theory, we'd love to be able to do more to protect uh, the students and the workers, but we're not able to. So just wear a mask and crack open a window. And that was essentially <laughs> what Lori Lightfoot's position was, was everything's fine. The little kids, they have little tiny lungs, so they're not the best spreaders of COVID-19. This is my, my layman's way of saying it, but, you know, they have little lungs, so they're not, you know, spreading COVID like adults. And uh, just wear a mask, spread out, and crack open a window, and everything's going to be fine. And the reality is, is that when you have such under-resourced schools, that's not a plan for safety. And so teachers demanded more. They demanded a real plan for safety. Um, and, and I do think that in this instance, this is where the mayor's personality and her own issues uh, you know, got the best of her um, because I, I think a different leader would have found a way to recognizing that there's limited resources. I think they would have found a, a better way of dealing with the situation and getting to a compromise sooner. Uh, all right. Before I go to the elected school board question, you, you raised the issue of her own personality. And it's pretty clear and obvious to me that I could just, I can think of two people right now in the city of Chicago that Lori Lightfoot really dislikes uh, and to the point where it's almost like she counterpunches when you hear their names. One is Stacey Davis Gates, uh, vice president of the Chicago Teachers Union. It just, Lori Lightfoot does not like Stacey Davis Gates. She can deal with Jesse Sharkey, the president, but she did that like uh, Stacey Davis Gates. And then on the other side of uh, the spectrum is uh, Alderman Raymond Lopez of the 15th Ward. She really doesn't like Raylo. Uh, and that's funny because both of them are regulars on my show, so I don't know what she's got to get. I can get if I can get along with them, anybody can. Uh, how does she get along with you, Carlos? You started out. You're very much in a similar position as Stacy. You supported Tony Preckwinkle. You're outspoken in your support of Preckwinkle. Uh, you hit hard on the campaign. I've had you on the stage at the hideout defending Bernie uh, Sanders against Hillary Clinton and uh, Joe Biden. Uh, so you're a pretty good debater. You don't hold back. How do you get along uh, with Lori Lightfoot two years in? You know what? Uh, you're right. I, I don't hold back. When I pick my candidate, um, I'm all in, right? And I'm, I'm loyal and I'm out there, you know, duking it out for them in the trenches. Um, and, and I do believe that Tony Preckwinkle was the most competent and most progressive choice for the city of Chicago. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the vast majority of Chicagoans did not agree. Uh, but I'll debate anybody at any point in time and say, yes, you know, I, I really do believe that uh, Tony Parker was the better candidate there. Um, but that said, you know, once Mayor Lightfoot was elected, I made it very clear. She's our mayor now and I need to work with her. We all need to work with her for the best interest, the collective interest of our city. Uh, and I made that very clear. Uh, you know, I was quoted in both the Chicago Tribune and the Chicago Sun-Times in their coverage of her inauguration, her swearing in, praising her speech praising the positions that she took forward. 
You know, she initially uh, issued an executive order uh, that sought to rein in some of the aldermanic prerogative that she had railed against on the campaign trail. And a lot of aldermen criticized that publicly. I was one of the few aldermen to say, hey, this is a good step towards good government. I was looking through my weekly newsletter that I sent out. And in those first several months, you know, I was making a lot of overtures saying, you know, let's work together. I reached out to her. She didn't give me a meeting for quite some time. And when I finally did sit down with her, you know, I apologized for, you know, some of the, the more personal things that had been said on the campaign trail, but reiterated my desire to work with her for the betterment of our community. And it was just very clear that she was not going to let go what had been said on the campaign trail. Um, and she made it very clear that she was going to seek to ice me out. Uh, that she was going to seek to work with some of my progressive colleagues, but wouldn't deal with me directly. Um, ultimately, I, I think that it was the wrong tactic that she pursued, right? Which was, I think she felt like I'm the emperor now, right? I defeated Tony Preckwinkle. I defeated the quote unquote machine, which is like, I want to write an op-ed about this. People need to understand that the new machine in the city of Chicago is Ken Griffin and real estate interests and all the money people who run our political system in this city. The Cook County Democratic Party they can't even get their committeemen to back Kim Fox. They couldn't even get judges that they went out against. There, there is no Cook County Democratic Party machine. It doesn't exist anymore in the way that it existed decades ago. The real power, the real corruption that's happening in the city are the corporate bosses and the corporate titans. And listen, let me tell you, you know who had their hand in their pocket was Lori Lightfoot. If you look at the amount of money that went from real estate to Lori versus real estate to Tony, it was like eight to one. It was ridiculous. So anyway... People need to understand that that's a new machine. But all that, why was I railing about that? Anyway, what? what no, we were talking, by the way, that was a great riff. Yeah. I, and I just, I cannot allow it to go. I've been meaning to write this for a while. I'm with you 100%. The, I don't, I, I would go a step further. I would say that the, the Chicago political, Democratic political machine has not existed in years. And you have to go back to the days of Richard J. Daley. It's been slowly dying bit by bit. Richie M. Daley became uh, a, uh, his own political machine. That's right. It was, it was, he, so he didn't dole it out to, that's a fact. I remember Richard Mel complaining about that. Uh <laughs> You know, back at the near the end of his days as alderman, that it was not like it was in the old days where you could get city jobs. So without the distribution of jobs to committeemen, there is no political machine. And yet, Carlos, they keep the vestige, this notion of the machine around. So it gets thrown around. So, for instance, Harry Osterman in the 48th Ward, that's the political machine. How is Harry Osterman any more a political machine? I'm not defending Harry or any. I'm saying, how is he any more a political machine than Heather Staines? I, I, please explain to me Wait, why. Who was calling Harry? Was Heather Stains calling Harry Osterman the machine? No, but in, in the uh, in, in like people are, are uh, sending out Facebook messages and uh, articles in the paper about how will the machine select Kelly Cassidy or will the machine? In other words, it's just like a boogeyman now. It's like you know, there's this concept that's kind of out there, and and now it's it's just cheap political analysis. And, and you just throw that around. You're the machine. That's the machine. They're supporting the machine. And it's just like, you know, if, if we're as progressives, as leftists, if we're serious about building power, then we need to have a truthful political analysis that really understands how power works in this city. And, you know, it's, it's actually not that difficult. Just follow the money. Right. And you can see what are the networks of donors who are working together, talking behind the scenes. Right. They're the ones having backroom meetings and deals. You know, I met with this one uh, big time, uh, you know, political donor who also helps, you know, bundle a lot of money for a lot of different candidates. And I remember he said he, that he had met with 
uh, Lori Lightfoot shortly after her election, and he said, oh, she's great. She's better than Ron. Um, and so that means that, you know, in these backroom <laughs> meetings that they're having, right, she's clearly posturing to them that she's the woman, she's the candidate that's going to look out for their interests, right? She's the one that's going to make sure that they continue to consolidate power and continue to influence policies in the ways that they'd like to see in City Hall. And the thing is that this machine is so powerful that despite all of her best efforts to really placate them, uh, the rush to reopen restaurants when all the evidence shows that it's not safe, Right. Uh, I would even argue that the rush and the push to reopen schools, you know, I met with her uh, as a group of Latino aldermen did earlier on. in, I think in October at that point in time, she was pushing to to resume in-person instruction because the schools have always been open. It's just been virtual versus, you know, in person. But she was pushing for in-person instruction at that point in time. And I asked her, I said, what's the reason behind this? And she said, number one, I'm hearing from business leaders who are saying that they want their workers to be able to go back into the workplace and to be unencumbered by having to worry about their kids' virtual learning. Number two, I'm hearing from downtown businesses that are saying that they have no more customers. Oh, and number three, I'm worried about the kids and their learning loss. Well, you just told me there, number one and number two, what was behind this push, which is there were some deep, this is my assumption now, this is you know what kind of what I'm jumping to, is that there were probably some big, time business leaders, perhaps donors of hers, that were saying, you've got to resume in-person instruction because we're tired of our middle-class, you know, uh, professional workers having to sit there all day helping their kid or looking after their kid. And at the same time, businesses downtown said, we want our customers back in, right? Resume in-person instruction so that we can force them back into the workplace and so we can tell them you have an option now, right? You don't have to keep working from home. You have an option now. The schools have resumed in-person learning. And also we want you to go buy that, you know, $5 coffee or $6 coffee down the street so we can keep that business open. And look, those are legitimate concerns, right? But should that override the concerns of worker safety and child safety and what's actually best for the safety and health of our children? No, it should not, right? But that is the neoliberal you know, uh, you know, ideology, which consistently says put profit before people. Yeah. Well, and also, and also there's, uh, the animosity, the personal animosity between Lori Lightfoot, uh, and the teachers union, because Carlos, just think about this. She should have, like, she sat down with, uh, the Latino alderman, but she didn't sit down with Jesse Sherkey. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, they brag. I make fun of her all the their and her and uh, Janice Jackson for bragging all the time about the seventy or eighty meetings that they forced Jesse Sharkey and Stacey Davis Gates to sit through with their various lawyers and HR people as they ground them down in negotiations, but never a personal meeting. Do you follow me? And I think that's also part of the narrative for neoliberal mayors, to use your term. Mayor Ramos the same way. He never met with Karen Lewis. In fact, the one, no, he had the meeting with Karen Lewis and it was, he told her almost exactly what Lori Lightfoot told you. He said, we need a longer school day because businesses are telling me they don't want those kids walking around downtown at 1.30 or two o'clock. They don't want those hoodlums like a young Carlos Ramirez Rosa from Whitney Young walking uh, east on Madison in the loop. We want them in the classroom longer. And she said, she said to him, oh, what you're talking about is a daycare. You don't want education, you want daycare. And that's when he told her to fuck you, Lewis. And so it seems as though some things haven't changed. The one thing that hasn't changed is that if you're the mayor of the city of Chicago, you you don't treat the teachers union like they're a peer. You treat them 
like a subordinate. So you don't invite them into the office and have a conversation with them. You have your lawyers negotiate uh, with them at the table if they're not willing to follow your command. you agree with that assessment of things? Yeah. Well, isn't, isn't that the boss everywhere? Isn't, isn't that the story of, and, and any worker, particularly low wage workers at, at Amazon, you know, warehouses, they'll tell you the way that they're treated, right, by the boss, uh, middle management on up, right? Um, and, and so I think it's unfortunate. And, and, and I think, again, going back to one of the original points I was making, because it's something like three or 5% of the private sector is unionized now, right? It's like 10% of the total American workforce is unionized, but the bulk of that is in the public sector, right? Um, and so that's why it's been so important for, you know, the, the big time business leaders in corporate America uh, to, to bust public sector unions like teacher unions, because it's one of the final sources of good middle class jobs and, and working class power in our society. Um, but, you know, the, we would have if if more of the private sector had been unionized, we would have seen more fights about workplace safety at the onset of this pandemic. And we saw a little bit, but it just, it wasn't organized enough. It wasn't strong enough. There were people in Amazon warehouses when you know the economy shut down and everybody was staying home, right? A huge chunk of the population was staying home, right? For a lot of people, that was never an option, right? And we've, we've seen the numbers, how that's played out. Black and brown people have died disproportionately in this pandemic. A big part of it has to do with the fact that they're working those frontline jobs where they never had the luxury or privilege of sheltering in place. But when the pandemic initially happened and people that were still going in were Amazon warehouse workers, they tried to organize in their workplace and some of them got fired. There was a ton of intimidation. If they had had a union like the way CTU had had a union, a lot of these conversations about what it means to work in a place during a pandemic would have been dealt with earlier on in the pandemic. And that's kind of the sad, frustrating part is that now as CTU is having this fight to say, we just want basic safety in the workplace, they're getting responses from people that are saying, well, what about all these other workers that have been working this whole time? And it's like, yeah, those workers should have had basic safety too. And it's such a freaking shame that they didn't have a union that brought them together to win those concessions from employer so yeah i mean i think that's that's the that's the mentality that that you know the mayor of chicago has particularly when they're backed by you know capital and by the moneyed interests of the city is you're the workers i'm the boss shut up i'm gonna bust your union uh and and i'm gonna get money from ken griffin uh, at the same time because he's gonna be super happy that i'm putting you in your place all right. Uh, speaking of unions, get your comment on this. Uh, in the New York Times interview, she's done this before. Uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot likened the Chicago Teachers Union to the Fraternal Order Police. And she said, I get along with every union in the city of Chicago, except for the one on the extreme right and the one on the extreme left. What can you do? You know, you got the commies and then you got the Trumpites. What's what's a good liberal mayor to do? You know what I'm saying? And all over, I know on the north side of Chicago, a lot of, oh, yeah, it makes sense to me. You know, a lot of north siders are saying that. What's your uh, reaction, uh, so, Carlos? You're so not a typical it, I mean, it's false equivocation. I mean, a lot of so-called moderates, they, they love to point to horseshoe theory. So this is just, you know, the mayor's version of horseshoe theory, this notion that, you know, people on the extreme right who want to kill minorities and gay people and take us back to feudalism, they're exactly the same as people that are fighting for a nurse in every school, right? They're the exact same as people who just want health care as a human right and want dignified housing and want fair working conditions. Yeah, it's exactly the same. Um, it's a ridiculous uh, comparison. 
I, I don't think that anyone that has actually studied, uh, you know, the demands and, and the function of a police union versus the demands and the function of a teacher's union uh, could take that uh, seriously. Um, I don't know if there's much else to, to be said. All right. Uh, by the way, do you think people in your ward are, are, are buy into it? Do you think like when, when the mayor talks that way, does it win over voters in the 35th ward? No, I don't think so. You know, I, I think one, um, teachers are so sewed into the fabric of our neighborhoods. It's very different. You know, in Chicago, we sort of know what are the cop neighborhoods, right? What are the, on the far northwest side and the far southwest side, right? Mount Greenwood, you know, Jefferson Park. These are neighborhoods with high concentrations of police officers. Um, I don't think you have a similar dynamic with teachers, right? Teachers are spread out all across the city of Chicago. I've taken portions of five neighborhoods. I have teachers who are active leaders in their neighborhoods in every single one of those communities, right? In Irving Park, Albany Park, Addison, uh, you know, they're out there getting organized and talking to their neighbors. And I think that's one of the extraordinary sources of strength for the CTU that a lot of mayors have misunderstood, right? They think that they can go on TV and use their bully pulpit. You know, Mayor Manuel was able to count on funding from the Walmart, uh, Walton family to put out ads bashing the Chicago Teachers Union during the strike. They think that that will win them the day. They don't understand that, you know, all politics is local. People love their neighbor. People love their teacher. Uh, teachers are also in conversation with CPS families every single day, right? Uh, they're, they're literally beamed into your home nowadays. <laughs> Uh, so, um, you know, I think um, a lot of uh, mayors, I think, have misunderstood that dynamic, which is that, you know, for a lot of people, their interactions with cops are very negative. And oftentimes there's not a cop living on their block, because as I noted, you know, cops are very segregated in terms of where they live in the city. But for Chicagoans, teachers are our neighbors. They're our child's educator. You know, they oftentimes they're co-parenting in, in many ways. So I think that there's a lot of love for teachers and there's a lot of relationships there, uh, which really help them win public opinion uh, time and time again. By the way, uh, we haven't talked since the budget. Uh, I think you were on the show right before the budget, uh, the, which was in, I forget when, I've lost track of time with the pandemic. But when I was listening to you describe the, what you call the police wards and uh, the, uh, the wards where teachers are living, I had a vision of the way the no votes went in the city council. And a lot of the aldermen in those police wards voted against the budget, as did my beloved lefty aldermen, who are the Democratic Socialists aldermen. I just call you guys lefties, but whatever. Uh, Democratic Socialists, a very unique coalition. I have coalition air quotes. Uh, Talk a little bit about that, Carlos. The fact that the aldermen from the police wards joined forces with my beloved lefties and voted no on that budget. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I think one we have to understand that the the biggest and most consistent coalition in the Chicago City Council continues to be the committee chairs, which are appointed by the mayor. And uh, Mayor Lightfoot now, on two instances, has expanded uh, the number of committees on the City Council. Some would argue that she's done that in order to be able to expand uh, the number of people that she can reward. Right with a with a committee in order to purchase their vote, and so even if you look at you know the the often pointed to analysis by Professor Dick Simpson, who he talks about is the city council rubber stamp is it not a rubber stamp. Consistently, the people who are voting 100% with the mayor's agenda are committee chairs, right? And so that's where the bulk of the of the mayor's votes come from. That's where the bulk of the mayor's votes for the for her toughest. Uh, you know, fights have come from whether it be the budget, whether it be her emergency power grab ordinance. Um, so. Then you have aldermen who, um, you know, have their different ideologies, right? And 
and for different reasons are trying to either push uh, the mayor to take a different stance or feel that they need to be uh, responsive to their community and take a certain stance. Um, you know, I'm trying to remember why, oh, it was, it was a property tax increase, right? So there were a lot of uh, people, and primarily, again, you look at the neighborhoods where, where they were voting no, where they just felt like they could not stick their voters with another property tax increase, right? Mayor Manuel had whopped them big time Right. I mean, it was the biggest property tax increase in the history of the city of Chicago. And the promise then had been this is going to be the last time. Right. That you're going to have to go through this. Um, and of course, the, the the difference here is that, you know, the progressives want to avoid a regressive budget by enacting progressive taxation and asking the rich to pay their fair share. And the conservatives want to avoid increasing regressive revenue. Uh, and increasing property taxes, which hit you know working class homeowners by cutting government. So so you know they're they're identifying the same issue, right? Which is that we cannot continue to nickel and dime working people in our districts. But the solution that they're identifying is separate, right? So me and the progressives put forward an Amazon tax where we said, hey, who has money in this pandemic? Amazon, let's tax them, right? Let's ask them to help contribute uh, towards the the wonderful city that they're making so much money off of. Um, and then at the same time, uh, of course, you know, some of those conservatives wanted to see cuts. And, and at the end of the day, what that means is that our mayor, as she looks towards, you know, the 20 plus aldermen that she has in her pocket because they're committee chairs, she then gets to make a choice. Am I going to get to a majority by aligning myself with the progressives or am I going to get to that majority by aligning myself with the more conservative forces on the city council? Generally, my sense has been. Uh, based upon, you know, having a front row uh, seat to these fights, she's consistently chosen the more conservative forces on the city council. And you also have to understand another dynamic here is that there's a lot of people at City Hall that say, Mayor Lightfoot always had the votes no matter what to pass that budget. There were some committee chairs who got to vote no on this budget as a treat, as a reward for being so loyal and so in line with her that she said, you know what, I release you, vote no, you know, I absolve you so that you can, you know, not have to take that vote in your district because unfortunately she was able to pick up some, uh, you know, progressive votes. Uh, I don't want to relitigate that, but it's just a dynamic. Uh, yeah, Andre Vasquez and Maria Hadden. All right, uh, uh, we just, you know, we talked a lot. Trust me when I tell you, the budget was discussed a lot on this show. Uh, you just for Unfortunately, you haven't been on the show uh, since right before the budget. All right, um, by the way, I just want to uh, defend Lori Lightfoot. Uh, you said that she buys votes by appointing chairs, and I want to point out to you that she has said many, many times that she never, ever, ever buys votes. So stop yeah. saying that, Carlos. Yeah. Okay. Yes, okay. Right. She said that. Yeah, I, I read it sometimes. Near Lori Lightfoot, just you know, she never buys votes. Um, that's the difference between her and Ron. All right, uh, let's move on uh, from the city of Chicago and let's talk some national politics. Folks know uh, sometimes Carlos comes on the show and that's all we talk are national politics. Diehard Bernie supporter. Uh, as I was, over uh, <laughs> uh, two on the Bernie uh, campaigns, Carlos. Um, your thoughts about Joe Biden's first, what's it been, about a month or so uh, as president of the United States, as a Bernie supporter, your thoughts? You know, I, I think that the initial announcements uh, that were made in terms of the policies that, uh, you know, Joe Biden would be pursuing were exciting. Um, you know, some of the initial uh, executive orders that were signed. Uh, one, we need to recognize that, you know, the the things that have been accomplished in the first 100 days, so much of it is rooted in long time fights. So, for example, you know, Joe Biden signed a moratorium on deportations. That has been a fight 
seven, eight years in the making, but not one more deportation movement, you know, started in 2011, 2012 with undocumented activists getting arrested, putting themselves on the line. So there's a long trajectory to these fights. And I think it's extremely important that it's leftists. We continue to understand that and we continue to uplift that because that instructs us, what do we have to continue to do to win more, right? So we shouldn't just believe that just the act of electing Joe Biden led to all of these wonderful changes happening overnight. No, these were long, hard fought campaigns. Um, now, that said, um, I feel like they've hit a little bit of a roadblock. I feel like Democrats, as per usual, I mean, it's a story that's getting really old, are being way too conciliatory to the Republicans. The Republicans have totally shown themselves to be a party that is totally off their rocker, uh, that would lead us to fascism in a second, if only given the opportunity, uh, and if some of us would get out of the way. And, and I, I think that you really can't deal with the Republican Party with kid gloves. You know, you, you have to be as ruthlessly politically effective as they are in pursuing their agenda. And so, you know, why have we not yet gotten the $2,000 checks to people? Joe Biden said that if we elect, you know, a, a Democratic Senate, those checks would be out the door. It's how many days, how many weeks now? People are starting to ask, where is that support and that relief check that I desperately need? Now, it does seem like we're getting close to passing that soon, right? The House sent the bill to the Senate. Uh, you know, Bernie Sanders, our wonderful budget, uh, you know, chairman, which, you know, just gives us so much hope uh, and, and, and really excites us about what is uh, possible and feasible. He has said that he's going to work with uh, the congressional progressives to make sure that that good progressive stimulus bill passes. I mean, it's going to be huge, right? If we get those $2,000 checks, if we raise the minimum wage to $15 per hour, plus get rid of the tip penalty, I don't think a lot of people recognize that, you know, that is something that we may achieve. Right now, if you are a person that has disabilities or if you're a tip worker, you make a sub-minimum wage, um, which so many people live in poverty because of the sub-minimum wage. We're talking about getting rid of that. That's huge. This is the legacy of slavery that we are now abolishing uh, through getting rid of that sub-minimum wage. So I'm really excited. I, I hope that we can pass this uh, you know, stimulus relief bill soon. Um, but we've got to do a lot more, and we've got to be a lot more aggressive. Otherwise, we're in trouble in two years, and when the midterm elections come around. All right, uh, you said something that really reverberates with me. You were talking about um, uh, you have to be tough with Republicans. I just wrote a column that got me in trouble with my uh, good government friends. Uh, I, I'm with you. I think the Republicans in this impeachment vote exhibited uh, just how bizarre they are. I'll just, I use the word bizarre and you can't trust them. You can't deal with them. Uh, they're, they're a cult of Donald Trump. Uh, and so I just on the local level have recommended uh, that the Democrats in the state of Illinois use their power in the legislative process and the redistricting process to essentially map Republicans out of existence congressionally to do to Republicans in the state of Illinois, what Republicans have tried to do to Democrats in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Texas, North Carolina, et cetera. And I've been under siege for my good government friends who tell me that I'm cynical and jaded and I'm promoting bad government and I should sign on to the fair map initiative where all Republicans and Democrats join hands in the state of Illinois and draw a map that benefits Republicans every bit as much as a Democrat benefits Democrats. Uh, who are I these disagree with them. liberals that you're talking to? They seem very comfortable and un un unafflicted. Because let me tell you, I mean, if, if you're a trans person, if you're a black person, if, if you're a low wage worker who has suffered as a result of these, you know, right wing Republican policies for all these years, you need every Democratic state possible to do everything that they can to send as many Democrats as possible 
to Congress. And we have to understand that the way that our, you know, federal government structured is already inherently undemocratic. Why is it that there's, what, 30, 40 million people in the state of California and they get two senators? And then you got, what, 600,000 people in the state of Wyoming and they have two senators? Republicans, even just the way that our union is structured, already have more opportunities to be represented. So if we really want to enfranchise the vast majority of people, if we really want to enfranchise a working class coalition of black, white, Asian, and Latino people, then the Democratic states in California, Illinois, New York have to do whatever they humanly possibly can to make sure that we send as many Democrats as possible to Congress. Otherwise, we're totally fucked as a country, right? Let's also, I didn't even get into climate change, right? So um, no, I, I totally reject that argument. Um, I, I just think it's it's people that are not being realistic. They're not living in the real world. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we have a responsibility to fight for justice and make sure that we have a representative uh, democracy. And in fact, trying to get send as many Democrats as possible from the state of Illinois or from the state of California to D.C. is actually helping to balance out that already undemocratic nature that we have built into uh, the structure of our federal government. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, yeah, obviously you don't spend a lot of time to talking to Dems. <laughs> because <laughs> my world's swarming with Dems. I see them all the time. And I, you know, I listen to Dems, Carlos. It's part of my, uh, like I said, remember I told you I wasn't going to hold it against Michael Simmons that he worked for uh, Rahm Emanuel. It's part of my new resolution to be really open-minded uh, as we head off. By the way, I want to say that, I don't know if you would follow what's going on in Maryland, uh, but they're, uh, they overrode the governor's veto as Republican Governor Hogan in Maryland, overrode uh, his uh, veto, uh, veto, and they're going to tax on the uh, Facebook, et cetera, and so forth, but they're advertising. So there are states, this goes back to what you said earlier, there are states and some entities that are looking, even North Dakota, North Dakota is uh, proposing a tax right now to uh, that would, for on apps, uh, for, for um that uh, Apple. So in other words, there are uh, some states and some municipalities that are looking at these more progressive forms of taxation, not in the city of Chicago, not really in the state of Illinois, but uh, there, there are others. All right. Uh, you uh, will close uh, with this. Um, what do you make of, you talked a little bit about the Republican party uh, and what do you make of what they're doing to uh, the Adam Kinzinger's and Lynn Cheney's uh, in the Republican Party who dared to vote against Trump, censoring them, uh, threatening to primary them? When, when you see this, like this dynamic of where politics uh, at this moment in time is heading, where do you think it's going on the Republican side of things? You know, the Republican Party has just really been in the throes of just conspiracy theories for quite some time now. Um, you know, Donald Trump became popular because he was one of the biggest birthers, right, in the right-wing media scheme, right? He was there talking about how Barack Obama was, you know, not eligible to be, you know, president, a bunch of, you know, uh, right-wing wacko conspiracy theories. And and so now we look at Marjorie Taylor Greene and we're like, oh, my God, that's extreme. But it's like, you know, how many moderate mainstream Republicans talk about how Joe Biden is a Marxist agent of the Chinese Communist Party. That is such a crazy, bizarre, nonsensical conspiracy theory. And, and that's kind of accepted as like a mainstream talking point in Fox News. So are you really that surprised when you end up with the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world, when you end up with the QAnon-believing Congresswoman uh, who believes all even types of more bizarre conspiracy theories? It's just really shocking um, to see that they fell off um, 
small business owners, you know, uh, suburban white people who believe this stuff. And it's just, it baffles me. I really don't have a sense of, of really understanding or comprehending how people become this way. I mean, a lot of it obviously does have to do with like the echo chamber on Fox News where they're just peddling these conspiracy theories all day every day. But the few Republicans that I've spoken with, some of them actually believe that Kamala Harris and Joe Biden, you know, the, the champions of American capitalism, uh, both at home and abroad, that they are somehow agents of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, you know, if, if we can't even have basic agreements on what's actually really happening in the world uh, and, and, you know, who actually holds power, uh, I don't even know how we can begin to, to find a way uh, towards having a Republican Party that, that makes any type of sense. Yeah, I think it has to fade away uh, onto a separate party. Uh, and uh, anybody who's, well, I can't think of any Republican, actually, this is going to be a, quite a confession, Carlos, that like I see eye to eye to, even I respect Adam Kinzinger for taking the strong stand, and I realize he's paying a price for it. I don't know if you saw the latest, like his family has denounced him. They say he's an agent of the devil or whatever. So I, I respect for him for standing up, but we, I, I mean, we don't see eye to eye on anything, on any issue. You know what I'm saying? I, ben, these people have guns back. What yeah. are we going to do? What are we going to do? Yeah. Oh, God. It's a frightening thought. All right, Carlos, I'm going to let you go. Your sound is breaking up anyway. I don't know why, uh, why that is. Uh, but uh, I should do a better job of reaching out to you. It's been too long since you've been on the show, and we'll get you back on real soon, all right? All right. Bye, Ben. Bye, Dennis. All right. That's the great Carlos Ramirez Rosa from the uh, 35th Ward. And I don't know what happened to you at the end, but just at the very tail end, uh, the sound was breaking down a little bit. But he was in a roll. Watch out, everybody. Snow coming at you. <laughs> oh, wait, did Carlos leave? Yeah, I think it was that snowblower that was messing up his sound. Oh. That's what was going well, let me shut the snowblower off. I miss Carlos, huh? Go Dolphins. <laughs> All right, almost done. Watch out. A lot of snow out here today, Ben. By the way. Did you hear that little, how he, uh, you know, that brilliant uh, debater? Ben, you voted for Lori Life at all, really? Oh, yeah, how'd it go there? I did. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah I did, Jay Marie. I voted for him. Yeah, if you, uh, if you know that, it's an easy thing to just throw right back at you. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, Mr. Like you know everything. Uh, who did you vote for in the last mayor election? <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you, Ben. What'd you say? Oh. <laughs> All right, <laughs> let's do the back half and let's talk some statewide news. No public event scheduled for our Illinois governor, J.B. Pritzker. Springtime. Love it. You, you're serious. <laughs> yeah, I love springtime, too. <laughs> Me, too. Yeah. But, hey, I know someone who has a big budget address coming up on Wednesday. It's true. Tomorrow, our Democratic governor will deliver his budget address and you know, what would a Democratic budget plan in Illinois be without a bunch of Republicans freaking out about it? <laughs> hey, Illinois House GOP leader Jim Durkin, are there bogeys when it comes to state government budget? There are no bogeys when it comes to a state budget. Oh, the House okay. Republican Caucus will continue to fight for taxpayers, demand a balanced budget, and hold the Democrat majority and Governor Pritzker accountable and with the taxpayer money of Illinois. Anything you'd like to add, Tom Dimmer? Tom. So it's a time for the General Assembly to re-engage, and House Republicans are certainly uh, willing to come to the table uh, to ask the tough questions of directors, 
to work through the budget process uh, and come up with a balanced budget that can put Illinois on a more stable footing in the upcoming fiscal year. All right, more from these knuckleheads and moments. <laughs> now, remember, everyone, right after the governor's fair tax amendment failed back in November, a then salty Governor Pritzker warned in dramatic fashion there will be cuts and they will be painful. Very, very upset he was after that uh, fair tax amendment failed. Now, last week in a preview of his Wednesday budget speech, the governor, well, he did repeat those claims. We're going to have to make some painful cuts uh, in state government in order to balance the budget. Pritzker also projected a $3 billion deficit down from $5.5 billion. Hey, we're making progress. His plan includes $700 million in spending cuts and increasing revenue through closing $900 million in unspecified corporate tax loopholes. The governor also promised no tax increases, though that's not how Republicans see it. All right, back to the knuckleheads. Both GOP leader Durkin and Representative Demmer voiced their concerns further heading into Wednesday. Shout out to ABC7 Chicago and Craig Wall for the story and audio. Please don't sue us. <laughs> Jimmy D, let's hear it. What the Democrats call is... Um, loopholes, we look at those as tax increases, but we also believe that that is a disincentive for businesses to remain in Illinois, to grow and to keep employees employed and to bring in new people. Demmer, Where go. department heads, agency directors come before the legislature, answer questions, provide information about their budgets. You know, these guys, uh, I don't agree with anything they say, but they, they do sound a little more, I, listen to them, they're a little more rational than Marjorie Taylor Greene, I will say that, you know, but I look at the, where the Republican is at, uh, party is now, of course, uh, not a, none of them will take a stand against Marjorie Taylor Greene and Donnie Trump and Rudy Giuliani, you know, the, none of them are speaking up on behalf of Adam Kinzinger, but just listening to them, they're like still keeping that pretense that they're rational, logical responsible politicians as opposed to a bunch of wingnuts who think that Donald Trump actually won an election uh, that he lost. Or maybe they believe that the forest fires of California were caused by uh, solar lasers <laughs> coming out of the sky. Anyway, I uh, in the Sun-Times today, the, uh, they went a little further. Uh, with uh, Durkin's quotes, and he cited Article 8, Section 2B uh, in the uh, Illinois Constitution that required a balanced budget. I go, oh, they're really getting down to the detail. The all-important Article 8. <laughs> what a joke. Republicans in Illinois talking about a balanced budget. Uh, this would be Republicans who supported Bruce Rauner all four Ugh. years when he didn't Ugh. have any budget. Ugh. Those Republicans. Ugh. Now they're like, oh, well, that was that was then. Now, now, Ben, stop looking back. Look now. Look, here's the deal, ladies and gentlemen. I said this last week. I'll probably say it many times to come. J.B. Pritzker's budget was, quote, unquote, a balanced. Got air quotes on that. Based on the fair taxes, Dennis said, based on money coming in from Washington. And so far, no money from Washington. And thanks to Phyllis and Kenny G, we don't have a fair tax. So we're going to plan B and budget balancing, which is cuts. 
And uh, Governor Pritzker has obviously figured out that heading into an election year, it's better to do it with cuts than with a tax hike. Because the next thing you know, you have Phyllis all over the uh, radio and TV going, I warned you. That's my Phyllis imitation. Uh, (laughs) I know, terrible imitation. Springfield politicians say they're not going to raise your taxes, but they will raise your taxes. So anyway, uh, that's where we're standing right now. We got a, the election is what? Good God, time flies, man. We're having fun in the pandemic. The, the, uh, Said no one. Nominating petici- uh, petitions go out at the end of this year, in September, October, for the primary, which is in 2022. The election's right around the corner. Already Republicans are announcing that they're going to be running against Pritzker, as Dennis has pointed out. He's exceedingly unpopular downstate. They blame him for absolutely everything that's gone wrong in the state of Illinois. Uh, they don't like him. And uh, so he will need to win by just consolidating the vote he has in Chicago, DuPage, Cook County, uh, using all his money to air commercials. It's going to be a tough fight. I I realize that. Uh, so he's looks sure looks like the last thing he's going to do is aggravate all those folks who hate him by raising taxes. And uh, so that's where we're standing. He's going to do. He's going to declare the budget balanced. Even though who knows if it's balanced? I mean, it's all a game they play anyway. You know, they proclaim it's balanced, uh, and then six months later they go, "Oh, guess what? Our projections didn't work out the way that we thought they would, and it's not balanced." So it's the games piles play. Everybody's reading from their script in this game, and the Republican Party has dedicated itself to the notion that you're going to run government without taxes. Uh, and that's all there is to it. They're hoping that they could just feed off the anti-tax fervor and just feed off the, what, the resentment that people have outside of Chicago and Cook County toward Pritzker for uh, closing down the state, mandating uh, businesses close, you know, very unpopular, so bizarre. It's so contradictory. On one hand, you have Lori Lightfoot here in, in the city saying, uh, it, it's it's okay to open the schools, but you know we still got to keep these businesses closed. Nobody seems to really worried about how she handles things, but of course JB Pritzker uh, is the centerpiece of opposition to all things closing down. Uh, you know, in all efforts to close down businesses, so D it's going to be really tough for him, and that's why you're going to see him. That's my prediction make a speech in which somehow or other he's going to magically balance the budget without raising taxes. Cause I don't think he wants to raise taxes uh, going into an election year and particularly one where he's already unpopular uh, because of the pandemic and his mandates to close businesses. So there you go, D the games politicians play. All right. Governor Pritzker, anything you'd like to add? The enemy is you. Well, I think he's talking about you, Ben. Well, yeah, I think he is. Yeah. He's certainly not talking about Steve Miller and the Eagles. No, not at all. Face cover. Oh, you're driving me crazy today, Cup. <laughs> and there Let's you begin are. with phase one. 
And there you are, everybody. Today's Ben Jarofsky show. Remember, you can download previous Ben Jarofsky shows, Benny J bonus interviews, like the weekend's Benny J bonus interviews. Have you heard them yet? Go check them out. ChicagoReader.com and wherever else you download your favorite podcast. You can always reach the Ben Jarofsky show on social media at Benny J show, B-E-N-N-Y, the letter J show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can send us an email, Benny J show at gmail.com. And you can call the Ben Jarofsky Show. It's true. 708-658-4788. That number again is 708-658-4788. We got a lot of promotions going on right now. You can become a bin head. Oh, my God. Are you a bin head? I don't know. But you can go to chicagoreader.com slash Jarofsky to learn more about this. It's a way to help support the Ben Jarofsky Show and the Chicago Reader. Also, Ben's got a book coming out. But we are busy these days, Ben. Uh, his greatest hits, the Chicago Reader. Uh, ben Jarofsky put a book out, greatest hits. You'll learn more about it once again, chicagoreader.com forward slash Jarofsky. I am done talking. I want to thank Carlos Ramirez Rosa, outstanding job as he does, uh, Alderman of the 35th Ward uh, on the uh, northwest side of Chicago. And of course, the man, the myth, the legend, the pride of Jordan, Illinois, without whom this show would be possible. It's Carlos, Lori Lightfoot, and Stacey Davis Gates will tell you back home in Alton, they call him Dr. Ski. We're just going to do that one more last time. Give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. We're going to have to make some painful cuts. What the Democrats call is uh, loopholes. We look at those as tax increases. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.